Our text for today is uh, from Matthew chapter 12 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Here once again, God's holy word. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? Yet I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not uh, have not condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus. And we thank you for how he brought sweet Sabbath rest to Israel and how he brings it to the whole world through his death and resurrection, through his perfect obedience, through his works, we have rest. And so by your spirit, guide us into that rest today as we consider these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Why is legalistic religion so attractive? For example, why would any person who has grown up in the United States with no cultural connection to Islam convert to Islam? That, that makes no sense to us whatsoever. I mean, it, sure, it doesn't make any sense to me. You see people around town, you see people around the triangle who obviously didn't grow up in Saudi Arabia, right? I mean, they obviously uh, don't, don't come from Iran and yet uh, they're dressed as uh, Muslim. Why would, why would, especially women, why would women, what, what woman would willingly enter that system? It's baffling. Or who would choose to convert to Hasidic Judaism with its, its Christless, graceless maze of dietary and social restrictions and regulations? What is the draw to that? What, what is the attraction? All the cults, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they have a works-based system of salvation, and they all have converts. There are people who convert to those cults. The Roman church for centuries has been corrupted by a false gospel of merit, and yet Christians who should know better still, for some reason, find their way to Rome. And there are branches of evangelical denominations, Pentecostals and free will Baptists and fundamentalists that that define faithful Christianity around unwritten legalist moral codes. Why would anyone willingly choose slavery and reject liberty? Why would they insist upon their works over God's free offer of grace through Jesus and his finished work, his perfect work? Well, one reason that legalistic religion remains popular is that it does not cut across the grain of our sinful nature. In fact, legalistic religion fits perfectly with our sin nature. It teaches you that you're not corrupted by sin. Your will is not in bondage to your fleshly nature. Your understanding is not darkened. You are capable in your own power to be good and to do good and to do a kind of good that's entirely acceptable to God. And what's good? How do we define good? Well, here's a checklist of things to do and things to not do that make us feel good about ourselves just as we are. Just do these things and you are good. There's no 
heart change, there's no life change, there's no shift in your motives or desires, there's no transformation or renewing of your mind. It's just a checklist that then you can use to uh, determine how other people are doing, how, how other people are living up to it. So it fits right in with that competitive judgmental impulse that we have. It gives us license to shame anyone who doesn't do this thing that we have decided is the most important thing ever. And if you wanna be more moral or, or better, all you have to do is make more rules. It's pretty easy. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't require humility. It feeds our pride like the Pharisee who says, I'm thankful that I'm not like other people. Rather than dealing with the root of our sins, which is, what is the root of our sins? It's an inborn, fallen, natural rebellion against God. Rather than dealing with that, legalism is a cover for our sins. It's like praying that, uh, uh, spraying that you know, cheap dollar store air freshener, you know, the cloyingly, sickly sweet air freshener you get at the Dollar General over the garbage can. Instead of carrying the garbage out, just spraying that over it. Um, it, it it's that attempt to just cover it uh, and distract from it. Uh, legalism is an attempt to manage the unmanageable, to manipulate the world through gestures and deeds and, and superstitious actions that, that, that draw down or pull down God's blessings, you think, to manipulate even God himself. Just do something, and as long as we're doing something, there is some kind of solace in that, some kind of, of comfort in that. And that's why it's attractive. The, among many other reasons, that's why it's attractive. Now, I always want to clarify... When I talk about legalism, a love for God's law is not legalism. We, we should be able to sing Psalm 119 in full sincerity and joy. The New Testament tells us three times to sing the Psalms. And so it doesn't say some of the Psalms. It says the Psalms. And that includes Psalm 119, which says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies. And goes on and on and on. For Psalm 119, it's the longest psalm in the Psalter. And it's, it's all about, it's 176 verses about how much the psalmist loves God's law. And we sing that joyfully with sincerity. It's not legalism to love God's law. It's not legalism to respond to the richness of God's mercies, to respond to his lavish, undeserved gift of grace. It's, it's, not, it's not legalism to respond to that by obedience. It's not legalism to instruct people to do what God says because his way is the way of life and peace and blessing. It's not legalism to seek to please God in all things. But you see what I'm describing here is a proper ordered love for God's law based in the work that the Holy Spirit has done in us and grounded in what God has actually said, not adding to or subtracting from what God has said. Legalism replaces God's capital L law with a thousand man-made little L laws that are typically obnoxious and oppressive. This is something to keep in mind. This whole distinction, this whole conversation is something to keep in mind in our reading of the Gospels whenever we see Jesus in conflict over the law. Jesus is not opposing the scribes and Pharisees for taking his father's law too seriously. I'm afraid that's the way the Gospels are read sometimes, that, that, that Jesus comes uh, and, and he corrects them because they're just taking the law too seriously, or they're applying it too consistently, or they're, they're uh, applying it too righteously. 
Jesus is not coming to Israel with this kind of breezy, hippie, hey man, just chill out, brother, kind of attitude. That's not what he's coming with. The, the problem of the Pharisees is not that they're obeying God's law too rigidly. The fact is they're not obeying his father at all. And they're oppressing the people with their own man-made traditions instead. And they're using these traditions to create loopholes for themselves to not obey God's law. And furthermore, they've built up this whole sense of national identity around their traditions in such a way that they believe this is what's going to preserve them as a nation. These things that they have, have uh, defined, uh, this identity is going to deliver them and preserve them and keep them clean and pure. Jesus comes to disabuse them of this destructive error. In fact, if they hold on to this, it is going to mean their destruction. So Jesus works to liberate them from all this by, how does he do it? Jesus keeps his father's law in a perfect way, in a way that is a deliberate contrast to the corrupted legalism that is prevalent in that day. So far in Matthew's gospel, this has brought Jesus into conflict. Uh, we've seen the ridiculous accusations of the Pharisees against Jesus. What have they called him so far? What have they said about Jesus in our study? They said he's a rebellious son of Israel. He's a drunkard and a glutton. He's feasting when he should be fasting. He's a blasphemer. He's immoral. He keeps the wrong company. He is impious. And the topper, the thing that just, uh, just sets everything off, is that they say he has a demon. And they're going to say that again in Matthew chapter 12. We'll uh, likely get to that next week. Um, they, they propose that, you know how he works all these wonderful miracles? He's in league with Satan. That's what they allege. And so rather than attempting to appease these accusers in order to keep them from criticizing him. Jesus doesn't acquiesce. He doesn't compromise. In fact, he does the opposite. He looks for opportunities to draw them into conflict and expose their bad teaching. Uh, here we have in front of us today two occasions where he deliberately does something on the Sabbath that he knows they're going to disapprove of. In all four gospels, the main sticking point between Jesus and the Pharisees is proper Sabbath observance. The Jews took the Sabbath, their version of it, extremely seriously. Sabbath observance had this high profile during this time in history for them, along with circumcision and their dietary restrictions. The Sabbath and those three things uh, were the markers of their Jewish national identity. These were the things that they felt this keeps us apart from everybody else. This makes us distinct from the world around us. And it helps us maintain our cultural boundaries, our national boundaries. So during this period, the scribes had a host of restrictions surrounding Sabbath observance. One treatise from the Talmud enumerates 39 classes of prohibited actions on the Sabbath. These are the, these are the big headings. These are the Roman numerals of things that you're not allowed to do on the Sabbath. I'm going to read the list. Uh, buckle up. Uh, this, is the, this is the whole list. Um, he, here's what you're not allowed to do. Uh, sowing seed, plowing, reaping, gathering in the sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing, grinding, sifting, kneading, 
baking, shearing wool, washing it, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it, making a warp of it, making two cords, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, untying a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing, uh, uh, tearing to sew two stitches, catching a deer, killing it, skinning it, salting it, preparing its hide, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, blotting out two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing, lighting a fire, beating with a hammer, and carrying property from one place to another. Each of these activities, now these are the Roman numerals, each of these activities was further discussed and elaborated so that actually there were several hundred things that a conscientious, observant Jew following the Pharisees, things that they could not do on the Sabbath. Now, is that what God's law gives us? Is that what God's law says? The core, the substance of God's commandment is observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's not a work day. That's it. It's not a work day. Not for you and not for your house. It's not a regular day. It's a day that you've consecrated for rest and worship and delight in God's works. You stop your works. You rest in God's works on your behalf. That's the substance of the Sabbath ordinance. And yet the Pharisees have turned it into this burden. When Jesus confronts them on this, he doesn't simply argue. Jesus doesn't come and say that, hey, just take it easy, fellas. Just relax these repressive regulations. Jesus doesn't do that. He demonstrates that they have missed the point altogether. If they had understood God's law, they would understand that what Jesus is doing here on the Sabbath isn't breaking the law. In fact, whenever Jesus is in conflict with the Pharisees over the Sabbath, I want you to remember this, and I want, I want you to keep this in front of you as we study this, Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath commandment. He's not breaking the fourth commandment. Jesus is doing the things that are obligatory. Jesus is not breaking the fourth commandment. He is keeping it. Jesus comes to fulfill the law of his father, not to destroy it. And by the way, you know, these um, chapter divisions we have in the Bible are extremely helpful, but they're not inspired. So what has Jesus said right before these things that we read this morning? Well, right before that, he said, which we saw last week, he said, come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He says, you will find rest for your souls. That's his guarantee. That's his promise. He is extending rest. He says, you are weary, you are heavy laden. Come, enter my rest, and you will find rest for your souls. And immediately after that, what happens? He goes to the synagogue. He goes to the fields. He confronts the Pharisees on the Sabbath, showing them this is what real rest looks like. This is what Sabbath looks like. So don't think of this when you read these things. Don't think of this as Jesus dismantling the Sabbath. He's demonstrating this is what Sabbath is for. And in the process, he answers the questions. Who between Jesus and the Pharisees is interpreting scripture correctly? Who really, and knows, uh, who, who really knows and represents God's will between the two? The Sabbath is on the surface. That's the surface conflict, but these are deeper questions. Let's dive into uh, chapter 12, uh, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain to eat. Jesus and his men are walking through a field on the Sabbath, and they come by some standing grain. Maybe it's barley. depends on what time of the year it is. 
but they're hungry and they pick some grain, some of the heads of grain, and they eat it. It's possible that you can take these heads of grain, rub them together, separate the husk, and you eat the kernels inside, which are these crunchy little nutty bits. It, this is not a feast. This is a snack at best. It's something to take the edge off the hunger, like a little handful of peanuts or a little handful of cashews or something like that. Now, when we see Jesus and his men do this, what does your mind run to? What do you think they might be doing wrong? I know my first impression is like, wait a minute, are, are they stealing? Are, are they violating some property laws by being out there taking? If I go to a strawberry patch and I start stuffing strawberries in my cargo shorts um, and, and uh, try to leave, I've got to pay. And if I don't pay, I am stealing. I should be arrested or trespassed for, for stealing. But the Pharisees don't accuse Jesus and his men of stealing, and they shouldn't, because according to God's law, the poor and the stranger are allowed to take from the corners of the fields. Landowners were required by God's law to leave the edges of their fields unharvested for the needy. I mean, that's right at the center of the book of Ruth, right? Ruth and Naomi come and harvest grain from the edges of the fields. They glean grain. So uh, landowners were not supposed to pick all of their fruits. You leave some uh, grapes on the vine. You leave some olives on the tree. Um, and, and they were required to leave them for the poor. In addition to that, in God's law, it's also permissible if you're traveling and hungry and you come across a vineyard or a field, you can take enough to satisfy yourself. Deuteronomy 23, listen to this from God's law. He says, when you come into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. So you can't go out there with a harvester and, and bring home bushels of grain and say, oh, it's right there in God's law. You're supposed to let me have it. No, you're not supposed to do that. You, you don't go out there and, and, and bring out bushels of grapes or olives, but you may take just enough to satisfy your hunger, and that is lawful. Now, why would God put these provisions in his law? Why does he put this gleaning provision in the law? Well, we can think of several reasons around care for the poor, um, but, but one reason, perhaps, is that it, it drives out this stingy, miserly tendency to think that I have absolute ownership over my land, absolute ownership over my goods in such a way that I don't owe anything to anybody. I alone get credit for all my wealth. I alone have pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I've rolled up my sleeves. I've created all this. And so it's all mine and I can do with it whatever I want with no obligation to God and no obligation to anybody else. Well, I want to underscore, yes, we absolutely do have ownership. God's law protects our property. When God says you shall not steal, he recognizes that I have stuff and you have stuff and what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. When he says do not covet anything in your neighbor's house, that means that stuff belongs to your neighbor. It doesn't belong to you. Don't, don't covet it. God's law protects our property. But ultimately, everything belongs to God. He gives the increase. He causes the crops to grow. He gives the sunshine and the rain. He restrains the pests. He causes our fruit to multiply. If your work prospers, it prospers because God has blessed it. God has allowed it. 
uh, to be a blessing. And since God owns everything, our ownership is secondary to his ownership. We have real ownership. Again, what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. But our property rights are secondary to God's ownership of all things. And God says, I want you to take what you have and I want you to feed the poor and the stranger. Yes, feed your house. You have a responsibility to feed your house. Fill your barns, but give God the first fruits and leave the edges of your fields for the poor and the stranger. And he's going to give you plenty so that it's not even going to bother you to leave the edges of your fields. So maybe in our mind, when we read this, we might immediately run, oh, that's a property rights violation. They're stealing, but that's not what the Pharisees bring up. It's not a matter of what they're doing. It's a matter of what day they're doing it on. Verse two, and when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Um, according to their tradition, again, plucking the grain broke the regulation against reaping. Rubbing the grain in their hands violated the law against threshing. By throwing away the husk, they were winnowing. And by eating it, they were showing that they had eaten prepared food. They, brought, they, they broke four dimensions of Talmudic Sabbath in, in one snack, uh, four violations in one mouthful. And that's what they're accusing them of. Verse, verse three, but Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? And I say to you that in this place, there is one greater than the temple. But if you had known what this means, and then he quotes Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus answers their accusation with a history lesson. He says, do you remember when David and his men were fleeing murderous King Saul and they came to the tent of meeting, they came to the house of God and they asked the priest Ahimelech if he had any food and, and all the priest had to offer was the bread on the table in the holy place. And that bread was swapped out every Sabbath for new bread and that was reserved uh, for the priests. That swap had just occurred. There was new hot bread on the table and so that means that David was traveling on the Sabbath, that swap had just occurred, and um, he comes to the house of God and there's, there's new bread there. Now, ordinarily, that would not have been David's to eat, but the priest is faced with a decision. Do you withhold that bread from these starving men who are fleeing from a tyrant so that they have to go on looking, or do you meet their need? Do you give them that bread? Well, here's the question. Did God call for there to be bread in his house? And did God give, give bread to his priests in a way that made them feel comfortable in ignoring uh, an obvious need? Is it true that this is the priest's bread no matter what? And David's men, I don't care. I'm sorry. You got to go find bread somewhere else. And, and this is the question. Is God's law designed to restrict kindness and mercy or to promote kindness and mercy? Does the law exist for the sake of the law? Does the law just exist, exist for law keeping sake or for the sake of doing justly, loving mercy and walking humbly with God? Well, 
I don't know how long it take, took Ahimelech to make that calculation, to go through that and to consider wisely, but Ahimelech rightly concluded that the bread on that table served a higher purpose in feeding David and his men, and he gave it to him. So here is a biblical precedent for keeping God's law in a way that serves the greatest good. Jesus quotes the prophet Hosea to underscore that very truth. Hosea says, uh, God says in Hosea, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The goal of right worship is mercy. The goal of proper worship is to make you more like God, to make you more merciful. Well, so this is a, a, a circumstance that, that Jesus brings up. This is a circumstance where love for the brother overrides the tabernacle ordinance. And in this case, the brother who is fed just happens to be the next king of Israel, just happens to be the man who's anointed to be the next king. And nobody looks back at that and accuses David or Ahimelech of any law breaking. So by retelling this story, Jesus is, is doing a few things. One of the things he's doing is he's comparing himself, Jesus is comparing himself to David. Think about the two situations that Jesus and David are in at this point in the, in the story. Jesus and his disciples are uh, in a similar situation to David and his men when David and his men are fleeing from Saul. Uh, David was a true king. He was obedient to God. David was the faithful son. David was the defender of Israel against her enemies. David is anointed king and he goes out and he does battle with Goliath and he conquers him. But he, David, and his mighty men are moving around in the wilderness while God dealt with this apostate king who's still on the throne, Saul. In the same way, Jesus is the true king. He is obedient to God. He is the defender of Israel. Jesus is anointed in his baptism and Jesus goes out and does battle with Satan in the wilderness and defeats him. And now Jesus and his mighty men are in the wilderness where God deals with the false king Herod on the throne. In both cases, in both stories, the, the, both bands of men are opposed, both men's lives are threatened, both are hungry, and both eat bread on the Sabbath. Now, uh, Jesus is comparing him. I'm just, I'm just like David. This is the very same scenario. And not only is Jesus like David the king, Jesus is also like the priests who work on the Sabbath. He brings this up. He says, you know, God's law requires rest on the Sabbath, but the service of the tabernacle requires the priests to work harder on the Sabbath than on any other day. The priests work and they are blameless because in their work, they are giving rest to Israel. They're, they're providing the kind of rest that only comes through renewed covenant with Yahweh. So Jesus working on the Sabbath, he is, is like the priest who is, who, who is working on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, by the way, I'm, I'm greater than the temple itself. Yet I say to you that in this place, there's one greater than the temple. So he starts this, the Lord Jesus starts this with this rhetorical question. Have you not read this? He says, you're professors of God's law. You're experts in his word. Do you not remember this part? Or do you just not understand it? We don't have an answer recorded. But his point is, I am like David. I'm like the faithful priests. I obey God's law, not the ordinances of men. He finishes up with the statement that the son of man is also Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, he, he created the Sabbath. He instituted the Sabbath so you can be confident that he's aware of what's permitted and what's not on the Sabbath because he made it up, right? He, he created it. He ordained it. 
Now, we don't have time today to um, develop the, the understanding of the argument why, in, uh, why the church worships and observes the Lord's Day on the first day of the week and not Saturday. I think we spent a lot of time on this when we did uh, the Ten Commandments and we stopped and parked in the fourth, the fourth commandment. So if you want to reference that or, or you want to go back and study that, the, the bottom line is that Jesus is our Sabbath, Lord of the Sabbath. He is our rest. And in his resurrection, we have entered into rest. We've entered into his rest. And so the day of resurrection is the new covenant Lord's day. Um, and, uh, and so that's why, that's why there's a shift from the beginning, from, from antiquity, we've worshiped on the first day of the week. But after stating that he is the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus demonstrates it again a week later. He, he knows what the Pharisees are getting twisted up about. They oppose him on his observance of the Sabbath. So he purposely, he deliberately looks for opportunities to correct them on this. He doesn't back off out of fear of what wicked men might do or say. He, uh, he brings the, the, the conflict to them. Verse 9. Now, when he had departed from there, he went into their synagogue, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, that they might accuse him? And then he said to them, what man is there among you who has one sheep, and if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value, then, is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Here Jesus is again in the synagogue on the Sabbath. There is a man in the congregation with a withered right hand. This is not a life-threatening situation. Healing this man might wait another day. This is not urgent. He could have healed him on Sunday or Monday. But the scribes and Pharisees are watching him closely. They're looking for something that they can accuse him of, and he knows what they're thinking, which makes this an urgent matter. This is now an urgent matter. What's urgent is that he corrects the wicked. He corrects the twisted beliefs of these accusers, and he takes them head on. Doing good and bringing healing is a matter of urgency, and that's not something that can wait. Jesus came to Israel to bring healing and revival now. And so there's no tomorrow for Israel in her present condition, as far as Jesus is concerned. You can't wait. There's no time to wait. Israel is lame and blind and leprous and demon-possessed and malformed and dead, and resurrection must come immediately. Healing must come immediately. Israel is marching toward disaster, and Jesus is there to stop them from going over the cliff. So he sets up what he's about to do uh, by asking everyone a question. If you have a sheep fall into a pit on the Sabbath, will you lift it out? Here, we're in synagogue. We're, we're debating God's law. We're reading and studying God's law. This is a perfect question to ask. Rabbi, if, uh, if your sheep falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you lift it out? Or are you going to leave it there till Sunday? Or maybe you leave it there till Monday. Will you lift it out? Well, the answer is, of course. Of course we're going to rescue the sheep from the pit. But Why? Why would we do that? Why is that not a violation of the law? Well, because the fourth commandment is not only about taking rest, the fourth commandment is about giving rest to your whole house, animals included. Animals are stated in the law when God gives the law in Exodus 20. The seventh day is the Sabbath of Yahweh your God. In it you shall do no work. 
You, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. The Sabbath is also for your animals. And if your animal falls into a pit, it's not resting. It's not eating. It's not drinking. It's in danger. Your animal is in peril and it needs to be delivered. It is not righteous to leave your animal in that situation. And it's not Sabbath keeping to leave your animal in that situation. It's actually a violation of the Sabbath to do that. Now, of course, Jesus turns that around and says, now we have a man whose life is worth exceedingly more than a sheep. And it's within Jesus' power to deliver him. Healing this man is Sabbath keeping. So I want to remind you that nothing that uh, what Jesus does and nothing what Jesus proposes is an exception to the law. Jesus is saying here, this is how we keep my father's law. Jesus is the great Sabbath keeper. So he calls the man with the withered hand to stretch out his arm in front of everybody. And the man does the thing that was impossible for him to do apart from the miraculous work of Jesus. His hand is restored as whole as the other. You see, these Pharisees want to dwell on the fine print of their own onerous Sabbath system, but they are incapable of actually bringing rest to anybody. And Jesus shows up and he does. He does bring rest. In fact, he heals a man whose whole life is, is kind of an unwelcome sort of Sabbath. It's a seven-day-a-week Sabbath that's been imposed on him, a burdensome Sabbath. He can't really work any day because his hand doesn't function properly. Jesus, in healing him on the Sabbath, allows him to do productive work so that he can properly enjoy Sabbath rest. There's no Sabbath without work the other six days of the week. So Jesus is glorifying the Sabbath by creating another faithful Sabbath observer, a man who's now going to be able to work to feed himself all week long and then rest in the blessings and rest in the work of God on his day. But the Pharisees miss all of this. They, they don't have a clue because this is in conflict with their agenda. They can't rejoice that a man has been healed. They can't see all that this healing implies for Israel. All they can do is get bent out of shape that Jesus is threatening their grip on the people and on their identity. For Jesus to undermine their traditions, that was just to, to threaten their existence as a unique set-apart people in a hostile world. These extra-biblical law codes were their identity, but, but it's not an identity God gave them. It's an identity that they imposed on themselves. Israel existed to bring healing to the nations. They were to be a kingdom of priests that would restore men to fellowship with Yahweh, to bring Sabbath rest and worship to the world. And here, they can't even rejoice when one of their own brethren is restored and healed. In fact, they're filled with rage after this, and they discuss what they might do to Jesus. They immediately plot against him how they might destroy him. Evidently, it's okay to do that on the Sabbath. Evidently, presumably, you can't eat a handful of grain and you can't heal somebody, but you can go out and plot someone's death on the Sabbath. You see what I mean? This, this, they, they wrap their cruelty, they wrap their murderous plots in a cloak of legalism. And that's, that's what legalism does. It shrouds sin. It, doesn't, it can't deal with sin. It can't affect sin. This man with a withered hand reminds me of Psalm 137. Uh, Psalm 137 was written during a time 
of the Babylonian exile, and it expresses how difficult it is to sing the songs of Zion in a foreign land. Listen to this. And I know y'all are familiar with this psalm, but, but hear it again. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept. When we remembered Zion, we hung our harps upon the willows in the midst of it. For there those who carried us away captive asked of us a song, and those who plundered us requested mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. This, this psalm reflects on the difficulties of maintaining the songs of Zion while living in a foreign land. And then the psalmist reflects, well, uh, let me not forget those songs. I don't want to sing the songs of Babylon. I don't want to sing the songs of idolaters. I want to remember the songs of Zion. This temptation to conform to Babylon is great. So the psalmist prays, if I forget Jerusalem, if I forget the songs of, of Zion, then cause my right hand to seize up so that I can't play the harp. Don't let me sing the songs of Babylon. Don't let, me, don't let me play or sing them. If I don't exalt Jerusalem above all, the, all other joys, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth so that I cannot sing. Make me speechless. Now we get to the New Testament and we see a man whose hand has withered. We see men whose tongues cleave to the roofs of their mouths. Jesus asked them simple questions that they can't answer and they can't rejoice over the deliverance of Jerusalem. What does all this mean? Well, I've pointed this out before, but whenever Jesus heals blind men, it's commentary that Israel's blind. Israel's blind just like these blind men, and he's the light of the world. When Jesus heals deaf men, it's because uh, Israel has not listened to God's word, and Jesus comes as the word of the Father, the word incarnate. When Jesus casts out demons from demon-possessed men, it's a commentary. Israel is under the oppression and dominion of demons, but Jesus has come and he has conquered Satan. Same thing with dead men. Whenever Jesus raises the dead, Israel is dead. Jesus is life and he has the power over death and the grave. Every healing is a commentary on who Jesus is and the spiritual condition of Israel. Okay, well now we see a man with a withered hand. What does that mean? Well, we find Jesus in an Israel that is worse off than they were in Babylon. Israel is once again in exile. Rome has authority over them. They're just as much in a foreign land as they were in, in Babylon. And Jesus finds among this exiled people a man whose hand has withered. His right hand has forgotten its skill. He stands in the place of all Israel, this, this man does, in the place of all Israel that's forgotten God's promises and therefore has become unable to play the sweet psalms of praise. And when Jesus asks simple questions, is this man's life worth more than a sheep? That seems like an easy question to ask. Do you not remember David? What happened to David? That's an easy question. Their tongue cleaves to the roof of their mouth. They are silent. All of this is a testimony to the spiritual condition of these people. They are in exile. They've forgotten who they are and they've forgotten what God has called them to. Jesus is here, though, to restore the withered hand. He's here to restore the hand that's lost its skill. He comes to put songs back in their mouths so that they can give proper thanks and worship him rightly. But not everybody wants that. They resist him because in Jesus' day and in our own day, people resist rest. 
They resist true Sabbath keeping. They resist the, the peace and the comfort that Jesus promises, that Jesus brings, because we love slavery. We even, in this country, we have a choice not to elect tyrants, and we do. How do we do that? How do we keep doing the same thing over and over? How is it that we have a choice on whether to vote for more taxes or to say, you know what? I don't want any more taxes. I, I pay enough taxes, and yet every one of these things get passed. Why is that? What, where, 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 why is it? Well, it's because we love darkness and we love slavery, and we think the darkness is a cover for our sins. Maybe if everybody's miserable, if, if everybody's awful, Maybe that's a distraction from my own wickedness. Let's just keep it that way. Let's just keep it this massive chaos so nobody sees what I'm doing. In fact, I'm maybe 2% better than everybody else. But the Lord Jesus comes smashing into that to deliver us from ourselves, to liberate us from our slavery to our own self-righteousness, our slavery to our disordered affections, this dominion of habits that destroy us and steal our rest. Jesus comes not with chains, not with oppression, but Jesus comes with the easy yoke of his Sabbath rest. He comes with this light burden of trusting and obeying and resting in his finished work for us. He trains our hands for war. He trains our fingers for battle. He restores our, our voices and he gives us the ability, he loosens our tongues so that we can sing the songs of Zion. We obey him, we, we worship him, and he fights for us as we enter into his rest. Now, you and I are ambassadors of this Sabbath kingdom. Your faithful work right now, your work in the world brings rest. Contemplate how your work in the world, it, it generates rest and restoration. It set, sets things right. Uh, disorder is unrest. Faithful work brings order. Faithful work brings, dis, uh, uh, faithful work brings deliverance from chaos. Chaos is not rest. Work brings order. Uh, consider how you leverage your gifts in the world and how you might even better leverage them to bring more rest to an oppressed, enslaved world. And, and if you look at the examples that uh, how Jesus brings rest here, how Jesus keeps Sabbath, it's nothing particularly earth-shattering. What, what are the examples that we have here? Well, feed a few hungry men. Jesus talks about getting a sheep out of a pit. He heals one man. Changing one life at a time. This is small stuff. This is mustard seed stuff, which grows gradually, persistently into a great tree. The church is this engine of cultural transformation from slavery to rest in Christ. Men come to the church to learn how to Sabbath, to reorder, to reprioritize their world. So we are ready to receive them. We continue to make the Sabbath a sweet delight through worship and fellowship and rest to embrace all the good reasons to rejoice in Jesus and his works. That's why we make a big deal. What, what can we celebrate? We got Christmas. Yeah, let's celebrate that a lot. Let's do Easter. Let's do Ascension. Let's do Pentecost. What else has Jesus done that we can rest in and rejoice in so that we can enter his rest, that we can rejoice in his works and to give rest to the world by bringing lost men to the one who guarantees rest
for your souls. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. Rest entirely in him. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for Jesus, whose work brings us sweet peace and comfort and rest for our souls. So today, may we rejoice and rest entirely in him as he is our savior and uh, we are his. So lead us to obey him and love him rightly and to, and, and to, and to respond to this great gift uh, with thanksgiving. And Father, give us rest for our souls. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.